No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, tennis analyst Mary Carrillo explains why she stands behind her criticisms of Serena Williams' behavior at last year's U.S. Open. I don't like bullies, Jeremy. I don't like bullies. <laughs> and I thought she was acting like a bully. Bullies have caused every problem in the history of our planet. And I thought that Serena was trying to bully the chair and he didn't take it. Plus... Raiders preseason play-by-play broadcaster Beth Moens discusses the challenges facing John Gruden in his return to the NFL. I think everybody was frustrated with the record last year, and you can give these guys tough love and sprinkle in something for for the younger guys to make them feel appreciated and help them to understand, you know, how much you do care about them. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to two of the most prominent broadcasters in the sports TV industry, Beth Moens of CBS Sports and ESPN, and Mary Carrillo of HBO, NBC Sports, and the Tennis Channel. We'll be talking about the state of tennis with Mary, but before we get to that, we'll talk about a little recent tennis history with our own Don Van Natta Jr., his new series, Backstory, it premieres Sunday on ABC at 1 o'clock Eastern Time with the first of five episodes of this first season, the first episode, Serena versus the Umpire, and it is a pleasure to welcome to our show again, Don Van Natta Jr. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to see you. Don, I'm really excited about the show and the series in general. Um what is the story you're telling here about Serena and what happened in the U.S. Open Women's Final in 2018? Well, last year's Women's Final, if you remember, Serena was going for history. She was trying to tie Margaret Court's record of 24 singles titles. and She's been we, trying for a while. For a while. But we all felt going into that that she was going to win. This was going to be a coronation. She was going against a 20-year-old Naomi Osaka which people really had some doubts about whether she had any chance to beat Serena. Serena was her idol. And as we all can recall, a year later, the clash that occurred between Serena Williams and the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos of Portugal, basically became a story much bigger than tennis. Uh, it was about gender. It was about race. There were you know divided friends and families. And so we decided to go back, slow everything down, because, as you know, in, in the world today, People make judgments instantly, 140 characters, and that's what happened here. And we really wanted to slow everything down. Zapruder film-like almost show each of the three code violations that were called by Ramos against Serena Williams, see why they happened, what happened behind the scenes, and then also dig deeply into the aftermath. Well, you know, it's interesting because I know I think we were speaking when um, you decided this would be one of the topics for the series, and um, the other topics uh, – they were a little bit uh, more in our rearview mirror. They weren't quite as recent, and there were um, there were some more obvious unknowns with some of the other things we were talking about, like uh, for instance, the Manti Teo situation from almost seven years ago. Now, how does the Serena story with Carlos Ramos fit into the context of what? The conceit is for the series. Well, it really is trying to explore the story behind the story. And so my goal as a reporter. Hence the title. 
Backstory. backstory. Exactly. And, and, and the backstory. Did I, I did it, say it, backstory at you, some point you, you in the did. intro, didn't I? But okay, every, every backstory of any story that you've done in your career, Jeremy, or that I've done is always more interesting. The story behind the story is always the story that in-depth journalists, investigative journalists try to find out. You're right that this was only a year old, but we began reporting this as early as November of last year, where we started sitting down with people on camera. Just a couple months after it took Exactly, place. where it was still fresh in everybody's mind. And we felt that there was a lot of ground to cover. You know, Serena insisted during that match, as we can all recall, I don't cheat. This is a matter of character. Uh, what Ramos called on that coaching code violation, she said, I never have gotten coaching. So we just wanted to even just mm. on that moment, look deeply and see how often did her, her coach, Patrick Maradoglu, send coaching signals? I interviewed him, interviewed him for the episode at Wimbledon this year. He said it was the first time ever he had sent a coaching violation, uh, a coaching code, uh, a coaching uh, signal to Serena. And so just even on that particular moment, I think viewers are going to be very surprised about what we found out. Serena looked right at the box as Patrick Maradoglu sent the signal. And we see in a split screen Maradoglu nodding. Mm-hmm. As Serena's looking, as he's sending the signal, and at Wimbledon, I asked him a very simple question, why do you nod? Did you feel that actually Serena had seen that signal? And then we found out exactly why Carlos Ramos called the code violation. Didn't speak to him, didn't speak with Serena, but found out with people around Ramos why he called the code violation, which has never been reported before, and it's in our episode. We're speaking with Don Van Don Van Natta Jr. about his new series, Backstory. It's premiering this weekend on ABC. It'll be on ESPN and ESPN Plus and ESPN's app all week long as well. Uh, starting this week, I should say, the first one, the first episode is Serena versus the Ump. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, sometimes in journalism, people don't want to see how the sausage is made. And this isn't necessarily as much a journalism story as some of the other things that I know you're focusing on. But uh, when you do that, what is it like approaching people to talk about something that has been controversial that they're not necessarily eager to revisit? Not easy. Uh, and particularly on the five topics that we've chosen for the first season, these are topics that a lot of the protagonists don't want to revisit. But we're not going to let Let's say Manti Teo, if he decides not to sit down with us for that particular episode, decide whether we're going to do it or not. Uh, it, Serena Williams, as I said, didn't sit down with us, nor did Carlos Ramos. Um, but we still feel talking to members of their camps and the reporting we got uh, that we got a lot of new information. The show's conceit, though, Jeremy, is a journalism journey, and it, and it's my journey, and it's done differently it, rather than regular voiceovers. I speak very conversationally, almost podcast style of what's in my head as I take each step. And hopefully there'll be an audience for that that will be interested in sort of the search for truth about a topic that people think they know, but we feel there's a lot more ground to uh, to, to, to cover and a lot more information to uncover. Um, you know, it's interesting with Serena. We get into this a little bit later in the show when we talked to Mary Carrillo. Uh, we recorded her interview before I'm now speaking to you, and she talked about how difficult it is sometimes to cover Serena um, because she is such a presence in the sport and she has meant so much to it. And there's a very good case, of course, to be made, maybe a convincing case that she is the greatest female player ever. But um, sometimes any kind of criticism of her has been shut down and she has shut um, she has shut out people who have criticized her. How, how fraught has that been uh, in terms of getting people to talk about her? 
very difficult. And uh, we've had more than one person say to us, you're either 100% with Serena or you're against her. So even in persuading people to sit down and revisit that match, they, I think they were making the calculation, what, what, whatever I say, is that going to upset Serena or her camp? So it was a challenge, um, but I think that we were able to overcome it with a lot of new information. And, uh, and you know, we'll see. Look, Patrick Maradoglu, Serena's coach now for seven years, who sent the coaching signal that started this whole drama during the U.S. Open final last year, he sat, he sat down with me uh, at Wimbledon, gave a great interview, very revealing. But he said to me before the interview, Jeremy, he said, I wouldn't be here if Serena didn't allow me to do it. So he had mm. Serena's blessing to do it, but it's an incredibly revealing interview, particularly about that first co- coaching code violation. Well, as I said, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, to this show and the rest of the series. Uh, we've got five episodes coming up in the next few months. Don Van Atta Jr.'s new series, Backstory. First episode, again, can be seen Sunday, 1 o'clock Eastern time on ABC, Serena versus the Ump. Don, thank you so much for having joined us. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to see you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's a pleasure now to introduce our next guest, who really is someone who needs no introduction, simply one of the best broadcasters and journalists in the business for decades now, the one and only Mary Carrillo joins us. Mary, thanks for being with us. Thank you for that introduction, my friend. Mary, um, you're a journalist, you're a color commentator, um, you're someone who played the game at its highest level. You do so many things so well. Uh, what what do you, you know, how do you these days divide up your time with so many responsibilities? Um, I work for a couple of different networks. Uh, so I just uh, covered uh, the Canadian Opens in Montreal and Toronto last week for Tennis Channel. I also work for NBC. Tokyo Olympics will be my 15th, Jeremy. Wow, 15. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. I work for a show on HBO called Real Sports with Brian Gumbel that I truly enjoy as well. Uh, and I'm adding to, to my pointy-headed resume uh, by working for Animal Planet this December doing what the Yukonuba Dog Show. I do dog shows for NBC, uh-huh. and now I'm doing my first for Animal Planet. So at this stage of my life, I'm 62 years old, I figure I'm going to do the stuff I love. And I love dogs. <laughs> well, you're doing a lot of the stuff you love, it seems, not just a little of it at this point. Yeah, it's kind of nice. I seem to continue to get some work, and uh, it's it's fun stuff. It really is fun stuff. I've, I've already shot um, three stories for next year's uh, Olympics, and I think Tokyo is going to be terrific. Um, and it will be interesting as far as uh, the tennis goes at the Olympic Games, it will be the final Olympics for Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and probably Venus and Serena. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, hope, you know, Andy Murray, if he can make it there, Djokovic might play one more after Tokyo. But I think there'll be a lot of a lot at stake in Tokyo for tennis. When You know, I, I, I think back, um, you know, to I guess it was was it in 84 that it was a demonstration or exhibition sport in L.A.? And I think. Steffi Graf and Stefan Edberg won when they were still amateurs. Obviously, the pros weren't welcome yet at the Olympics. And it took a couple of Olympics for the tennis tournament to be appreciated, I think, not only by um, 
by fans, but also by the players themselves. Now, is it really, does it really uh, amount to like a fifth major? I think it does for a lot of people. Um, and, and for some people like, uh, you know, uh, the Russians and the Chinese for whom, you know, the Olympics are the ultimate, uh, it means even more. Uh, I have a feeling it's why Venus Williams is hanging around. She's 39 years old, Jeremy. She hasn't won a major in a long time, but she has, I think she's been in four Olympic games now. She's won a bunch of medals in singles and in, in doubles. Um, and the Olympics mean the world to her. Um, so she'd have to qualify her ranking. There are a bunch of Americans who are ranked higher than she is right now. But the Olympics, I, I think what turned it, honestly, is probably the 2008 games in Beijing. Um, and it's a tricky time of the year because it falls in between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. So there are some players who used to think, ah, it's, it's not worth it. And in Barcelona, for, in- for instance, it was on clay. So the clay court season was over. The grass court season ended. The hard court season was starting. <laughs> like, um, so, uh, but now it means the world. And for, for instance, imagine how much pressure – 21-year-old Naomi Osaka is going to feel playing in Tokyo next year. She won last year's U.S. Open. She won this year's Australian Open. She's been slumping ever since. And she has made already, I mean, within a couple of years, Naomi will be the highest paid athlete, woman athlete in the world. She'll surpass Serena uh, and Maria Sharapova and all the rest. So that's a lot for her. And she's not taking the fame and the expectations easily. Uh, She's not wearing it lightly. Um, So for somebody like Naomi Osaka, she will be on every billboard, every, you know, she will be ridiculously famous in Japan next summer. It's going to be a big deal. We're speaking with Mary Carrillo, the tennis commentator, the Olympic essayist, the journalist, reporter for Real Sports, uh, who does so many things so well, still still at the top of her game, of course, at 62. And four years ago at this time, you know, we were talking about Rio coming up and Zika and water quality and all those kinds of things that I'm sure Jim Bell loved hearing about in the press all the time and everybody else at NBC. And now here we are a year out from Tokyo and everybody's talking about the heat. How are, are they playing the tennis outdoors, I assume? Is it going to be, is it going to be as miserable oh yeah as can possibly be it'll be rough it'll be outdoor hardcore so all that heat's going to refract up into the players faces and i gotta tell you jeremy last year's u.s open was unbearable oh it was so brutal i don't know how how much time you may have spent there but uh especially in the two stadia it was rough i mean roger federer lost early he lost in the fourth round to an aussie named john millman and he walked off the court into the referee's office and just stayed there a while. He didn't, he couldn't, he didn't even go straight back to the locker room. It was so, it was so hot. So, I mean, I, climate change is going to have a lot to do with sports, isn't it? I'm, I'm, you know, there are, especially to me, it's, I mean, the, the summer sports are rough and I think baseball attendance, especially last summer went down because of the heat. Uh, There are ski resorts, uh, around the world that don't have enough snow now. There's, they've got to build, you know, in indoor climbing things and, and ice rinks and stuff, indoor ice rinks. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. Sounds like a good story for real sports. I have already pitched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is tricky stuff. 
It really is. One thing I think anybody who's watched you over the years has come to expect, and and unfortunately this isn't always the case when we watch sports commentary, is um, total honesty and a commitment to telling it like it is in the tradition of Howard Cosell, if you will. And, and there are a lot of people who protect relationships above all else. And there are a lot of people who are so inside a particular sport that they – come to see themselves as defenders of it rather than people who cover it. I think people expect um, much better from you. How do you, how do you manage that? Uh, not always, not always easily. I've been in just about everybody's doghouse at one time or another. And my, my thinking on it, Jeremy is, and I can say the same thing about your reporting. You, you, I want to be consistent. I, I trust somebody that is consistently candid and honest because, you know, I mean, how else? It, look, it's why I have such great respect for good beat reporters. They've got to live with the baseball team all year or a football team or a basketball team. And they've got to somehow figure out how to cover it honestly and, and respectfully and still be able to take swings at things when they go wrong. And that's what I've always wanted to do. Frankly, your father was one of my all-time heroes. Uh, I was lucky enough to know the late, great Dick Shep, and he continues to be one of my one of my idols in this business. And his son is a lot like him. So <laughs> um, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be able to say that and mean it, uh, because there are, you know, tennis is tricky. Um, there, there are so many conflicts of interest in the sport. And as I said, I've been in... Every major doghouse from Andre Agassi to Serena Williams to Monica Seles, I mean, to people I genuinely like and, and respect. But if you, don't, if you don't call it cleanly, then what have you got? I mean, your reputation is everything. And, you know, tennis, is, it's a long, it's a you know, ten and a half month sport. So what I do is I'll say something critical, like I did uh, – in, in the wake of the Serena Osaka U.S. Open final last year, as the words are leaving my teeth into the ozone, I know I'm getting myself in trouble. You told what was your truth and how you felt about that moment. Uh, how did Serena Williams, the dominant, obviously, athlete in her sport for the last two decades, feel about, uh, and you guys have a relationship that goes back a long time, a good relationship. What was her reaction to your bluntness and your candor? Well, first of all, I called the match for Tennis Channel with Lindsay Davenport, and I, I agreed up, up to a point with everything Serena Williams was saying, Jeremy. She doesn't need coaching. She doesn't want coaching. Even when there's on-court coaching allowed in the non-major, she doesn't take it. I mean, Serena, more than any athlete I've ever seen, can be playing a terrible match and get tight and figure out a way to win. I mean, I've seen that from her. I've seen her play with really, really bad form, down a set and a break, and all of a sudden she climbs her way back. And that's what I expected in last year's final. Um, and it didn't happen. And I was very uh, critical of her coach, Patrick Moradoglu, who basically started the chaos of that, of that final. Um, I, I think the chair umpire, a terrific guy who's been around for decades, named Carlos Ramos, did a very good job. There were, most people were saying, uh, you know, he should have given Serena a soft warning when she started losing it. I disagree with that. Everybody knows the rules. 
Uh, you give a soft warning in the beginning of a match, not towards the end of it, you know. Um, I, so I was, I felt that the chair umpire really uh, was overly criticized. He was just doing his job. He's a no-nonsense guy. Uh, I think Serena kind of pulled, somehow she pulled race and gender and motherhood and the, the, the differences between men and women losing their minds during matches, like she brought it all into one big thing. Uh, and I disagree with that. I, I mean, I don't like seeing, I don't like seeing, I don't like bullies, Jeremy. I don't like bullies. <laughs> and I thought she was acting like a bully. And, and to me, bullies have caused every problem in the history of our planet. And I thought that Serena was trying to bully the chair and he didn't take it. And that was a great pity. Now, how did Serena react to it? I don't know. I've never, I've seen her since, and we, we haven't talked about it. But again, I, I certainly go on record uh, <laughs> every time I'm, I open my mouth. And I, consi- I considered, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uncomfortable seeing her one-on-one uh, or asking her a question in a press conference. The fact is she hasn't played that much this year. Um, so I, I honestly haven't seen her that much in 2019. I thought, I thought she was going to win Wimbledon this year. I thought she was going to win Wimbledon last year. I thought she was going to beat Osaka at last year's U.S. Open. She's lost four times in a row now, um, and she's never done that before. The most she's ever in, in finals, including last week when she had to retire the Canadian Open. The most she'd ever lost in finals before that was two in a row. Um, so, look, I'm hoping for the best for her. I want to see Serena make more history than she's already made. Um, and there is so much that I respect about her, I like about her. Um, but I, you just can't act that way. And, and New York has always been a problem with Serena. Her worst uh, temper, her biggest, you know, her biggest problems have always happened at the U.S. Open. Long ago when it was against Kim Kleisters and she lost her way and she ended up getting defaulted in the, at the end of the match. And Sam Stozer, when she played and lost to her in the U S open final. And this thing last year, I mean, this, I think because it's the last major of the year and Serena basically shuts down her season after the open. And more often than not, she's trying to make history as she's trying to do in a couple of weeks, I think. And if, the fact that it's New York probably doesn't help and New Yorkers <laughs> who, who wanted to see her get going. She's always had it hardest, I think, to hold it all together in New York. I've never seen her behave the way she has in New York at, say, Wimbledon on center court there. We're speaking with Mary Carrillo. And Mary, you know, you know this stuff, obviously, as well as anyone. And, uh, you know, this is what we do in sports radio. We talk about the greatest. We talk in superlatives. And, and from someone on the outside, it seemed almost heretical uh, over the last few years to suggest that Serena is not the greatest uh, women's tennis player of all time. Is there is there any argument about it anymore? Is there competition? Can we still talk about uh, a Steffi or a Martina, or or is the debate uh, for all purposes, all intents and purposes, over? I can make that argument. I mean, I, I that Martina Navratilova won as much as she did and played singles, doubles, and mixed doubles is astonishing to me. That Steffi Groff won twenty two majors. That is a great number, except when you realize that her greatest rival at the time, Monica Seles, was out for almost two and a half years when someone stabbed her, literally stabbed her, 
in the name of Steffi Groff returning to number one. Martina and Chrissy, had, they made each other cry just about every weekend for uh, more than 15 years. The problem, it's not a problem. Of course, Serena is in that conversation and maybe at the very top, except that she has not had a great rivalry. You know, not for a long time. We all thought in the early 2000s that she and Venus would be playing for majors, for major titles forever. And after a couple of years, that didn't, that stopped happening, except once or twice more at Wimbledon. Um, Serena's, uh, the Sharapova-Serena thing, I mean, God bless Maria Sharapova, but she hasn't beaten Serena since 2004. So the rivalry there is more for uh, sponsorship deals <laughs> um, and watch deals than tennis matches. Um, Serena had a terrific-looking rivalry with the Belgian player, Justine Enna, for a while. And then all of a sudden, Justine up and, up and, and, and leaves the sport, retires. So, I, you know, when you look at the overall scope of Serena's career, it is luminous. She's magnificent. Um, I think why there's still a conversation is because people like me very well remember what it was like watching Chris Everett play Martina and how consistently they got into finals, you know? So, and how much, how much they were playing. Yeah. I mean, and Margaret court is Margaret court's 24 majors is the one that Serena is going after. And people are critical of that saying, because Margaret started in the amateur days uh, and 11 of her 24 majors came at the Australian open where quite frankly, a lot of the draws, they weren't, not only were they not full of great players, but they weren't even large. They were 32 draws instead of today's 28, uh, 128 draws. So, of course, these are barstool arguments, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very happy to belly up to the bar and blow the suds off of you and have this conversation, but <laughs> the more interesting conversation for me is on the men's side. Right. And again, until Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic put down their rackets for good, I, don't, I can't say who the greatest of all time. I can't really say that the greatest of all time is Roger Federer. I mean, if you figure that Novak's much younger than those guys. Roger just turned 38. Um, Novak's playing unbelievable tennis. He just won at Wimbledon. That got him to 16 against Rafa's 18 majors and and Federer's 20. Imagine if Federer had won that final and he had two match points, Jeremy. He would have gotten to 21 majors and Djokovic would have stayed at 15. That is a huge difference. It's insane. When we grew up, uh, you know, Roy Emerson's 12 seemed uh, as if it was going to stand forever, and half of those were Australian Opens, of course. But, but you know, then we could talk about Laver, right? 11 and all those years he didn't get to play because he was a professional, and the professionals didn't get to play in the major championships. Um, and then when Pete Sampras won the U.S. Open and got to 14 majors and said, all right, um, here's a good way to end, he had to have been thinking, well, that's going to last right. for at least a while. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, that's, you know, I, I genuinely thought, God, Pete Sampras is, he could be the greatest player of all time. Now people don't even have him no. in, the same, in the same conversation as the three we're watching now. Especially because he didn't win the French. Yeah. yeah because he doesn't have the career grand slam. Well, we, it's always fun watching Mary Carrillo doing whatever she does at the Olympics, on tennis, on real sports. Uh, and I'm not saying that just because you once offered me a job as uh, as one of your writers, producers at the Olympics about 25 years ago when we were both I young. I sure did. Um, I, they offer still open, Jeremy. 
<laughs> I might take you up Not on that. Not that you Mary. need me anymore. Thank God. Yeah, uh, you know what? Uh, all the help I can get. That's what I need. <laughs> but, but thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, there's nobody better. Uh, we're honored to have you here on the Sporting Life. Jeremy Shep, thanks for having me. This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Already on this show in the last few weeks, we've talked a little bit about the Raiders and their appearance on Hard Knocks. This is, what is it now? I think it's about the 12th season of Hard Knocks. People are talking about the Raiders. A lot going on there. Obviously, second season for John Gruden as the head coach. We've got Antonio Brown on the team now, and we're joined by my colleague, uh, one of the best in the business. She has been doing Raiders games for the last five years in the preseason. She's one of the only women to have called NFL national games, and it's a pleasure to welcome to the Sporting Life, Beth Mowens. Beth, thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jeremy. How do you think the Raiders are handling all of the attention coming their way right now? Um, you know, I, I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. I, it's, you know, the reality of the you know present day NFL uh, is that, and and with social media being the way it is, um, I think for this generation of younger guys, they're a lot more used to it uh, than you know, say back in the day when there weren't television cameras and phones everywhere and. And so I, I think there's an awareness uh, that you're constantly on uh, is, you know, one of the phrases that we like to say in, in broadcasting and sportscasting, too. So um, other than the I think having to get used to the boom mics, uh, boom mics and all the camera guys that, you know, hard knocks comes in with a, a pretty substantial number of people. Um, I, I think once you get past that the first couple of days, I think you, you, they've done a good job of settling in and, and getting to work and and trying to figure out how all the new pieces fit i think that's the big thing with training camp i think the count is there are five remaining starters from the day before gruden arrived two years ago uh to the point now where you're you're trying to gel 17 new starters over the course of the last two years. Speaking of Beth Moens, the ESPN and CBS broadcasters calling the preseason games for the Oakland Raiders again this season. And, and Beth, um, you know, when we think about the Raiders, obviously we're thinking about John Gruden and his big personality, how he imposes that personality on the teams that he's coached over the years, on the people that he works around. Uh, certainly that was the case at ESPN and elsewhere. As a coach, how does a young team uh, respond to the John Gruden of 2019? Um, you know, I think that's the, the challenge that John um, was ready to take on when he returned to the sidelines. Um, you know, I get to work alongside Rich Gannon, who played for John uh, with the Raiders the first go round, um, and and he does like to joke. You know, how come you don't yell at these guys the way you used to yell at us? <laughs> um, but I I think um, you know Jeremy winning is the great elixir for everything. You know, I, I think everybody was frustrated with the record last year and and excited and hopeful that there's more pieces in place where you can give these guys tough love. Um, and, and sprinkle in, you know, something for, for the younger guys um, to make them feel appreciated and may, help them to understand 
um, you know, how much you do care about him. I, I think even, uh, you know, the first iteration of John with the Raiders, you know, Rich Gannon loved playing for the guy, even though he was r- really tough on him. For you, Beth, calling preseason, um, obviously there are a lot of guys on these teams who aren't going to be there the following week or at the end of the month when they make final cuts, uh, the, the rosters are so big. Uh, how how challenging is it calling preseason football? Um, the actual games themselves, I, I think, um, you know, you, you find that they're much more conversational and uh, you're doing a lot of, you know, projecting of, hey, here's what the lineup is probably going to look like. Here are the guys that are in a position battle right now. Um, and then you you want to give those guys that, that are, you know, uh, guys 70 through 90 who are, you know, fighting for a roster spot or fighting to get on a practice squad or, you know, in today's NFL, fighting to impress some other team that if they do get cut, maybe I can catch on somewhere else. And um, I, I think you take a lot of pride in, you know, you, you find the nugget, you know, you, you find the story of, of their life. You know, that guy in Cleveland the other day is a great example. Sheehy of, you know, there's a, there's a guy like that on every team that is, defying the odds um, to try and, and chase their dream. And so that's part of what I really enjoy about it is these are regular guys um, trying to defy the odds and, and make it in the league. And, and I think there is some inherent drama in that, even in a third or fourth quarter of a preseason game. When you, when you did the uh, Rams-Raiders preseason game this past week, you were working for the Raiders. Mina Kimes, our colleague, was working for the Rams on their broadcast, doing color commentary. Uh, what, what was it like having another woman commentator on an NFL broadcast uh, for the same game you were calling? You know, that was really cool. I, I had a chance to um, visit with Mina pregame and, and then, uh, you know, stopped uh, into the booth to see how things were going at halftime. I, you know, I, I think every time you have people in a position where you can sort of break down a stereotype or give somebody an opportunity to prove themselves and allow the the fans and the listeners to, you know, sort of make up their own mind about whether or not somebody's good enough to do the job. Um, and, and that's really the, I think the biggest thing. And um, I'm really proud, Jeremy, when I see, you know, somebody get an opportunity, you know, just in the last couple of years since Monday night football and, and the NFL on CBS, there are a lot of young, young women now calling uh, play by play in minor league baseball, which is, I, I think one of the best proving grounds um, because you get a lot of reps in a very short period of time. And, and you've got women now in, in um, all four of the major sports. You know, you got Kendall Coyne, uh, Schofield doing, doing the NHL, joining uh, Doris and, and Jessica in, in the NBA and MLB. So it's a, it's a great thing to see and pretty cool. Been speaking with Beth Mowens about her career in broadcasting in the state of the Raiders. Before we let you go, Beth, I know you mentioned Rich Gannon you're working with. You're also working with Matt Millen, one of the Raiders all-time greats. How's Matt doing? We've, uh, uh, we've spent some time together since his heart replacement surgery. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, other, other than everybody thrilled to see Matt and, and to be able to talk with Matt, uh, people couldn't say enough about the job that, that ESPN and you guys did with, um, Thank you. you know, the special piece on him and, and what he had to go through and, and sort of what I've called uh, the, the Christmas Eve miracle. Um, he is looking good. He's feeling good. You know, I think he gets a big boost um, from all the football fans out there that have sent their, their well wishes. And I, I think it was, um, you know, the best medicine possible for him to be back around 
a lot of the the uh, you know the old Raiders uh, that were um, up in Napa at training camp and and great for him to be back out there on the field and back in the booth and uh, you know I, I the the people that know Matt I'm you know I'm not spilling the beans here but uh, you, you see the the, uh, the the crusty old soul on the outside and, and inside he's a big old teddy bear. <laughs> Beth Mowens. Uh, Beth, we hope you have a great season. Thank you so much for taking some time for us here on The Sporting Life. Thank you very much, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.